Open your Bibles, please, to Luke 2, and look at verse 22. You follow along as I read, please. And when the time came for their purification, that is, Mary and Joseph and Jesus, according to the law of Moses, they brought him up to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord. As it is written in the law of the Lord, every male who first opens the womb shall be called holy to the Lord. And to offer a sacrifice according to what is said in the law of the Lord, a pair of turtle doves or two young pigeons. Now there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon. And this man was righteous and devout, waiting for the consolation of Israel, and the Holy Spirit was upon him. And it had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ. And he came in the Spirit into the temple, and when the parents brought in the child Jesus to do for him according to the custom of the law, he took him up in his arms and blessed God and said, Lord, now you are letting your servant depart in peace according to your word. For my eyes have seen your salvation that you have prepared in the presence of all peoples, a light for, the Gentile, for revelation to the Gentiles and for, the, and for glory to your people, Israel. We'll end our reading there for this morning. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray together. Father, as we open your word, it's with expectation once again that you will speak to us that by this same word, you will reach to the deepest places where soul and spirit come together and reveal to us our sin, our false ways of thinking and living, that we might turn from all of that and turn to you, the living God. We are thankful that at Christ's departure, the Holy Spirit has come into the world and not just come to dwell alongside us, but actually has come to make his dwelling in us. Holy Spirit, would you come and do all your holy work in us? Would you cause us to believe? Would you cause us to rest? Would you establish your dominion of peace in our hearts? And we ask that as you open the word to us, we might understand it in order to believe it, and then that we might believe it in order to obey it. We thank you that you are our God that Christ is our one and only Savior. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. I want to give you a little background this morning. There are a couple of other characters operating at this particular moment in human history, and in this particular setting, one of the dominating figures, if you were you know, pulling up your news feed each morning, would have been Herod the Great. It's hard for us to fathom when we read through the Gospels, even though he makes an entrance at a couple of key points, but he was dominating the local news. For Herod the Great, his 33 years of rule were divided into three periods, and when Christ is born, he's really at the tail end of that. The first 12 years are referred to by some scholars as that period of consolidation, where Herod was consolidating his power. And then there's a period of about 12 years of prosperity, where now that he had the, the pieces in place and the important figures who were helping to accomplish his, his uh, royal will, it was a season of prosperity. But the last decade of Herod the Great's rule was marked by domestic trouble and growing paranoia. And we have some sense, even watching our government and, and the two different 
the primarily uh, just two-party system here, right? As they vie for control and kind of war one against the other, it has an unsettling effect. But imagine that if we had at the top of uh, our nation a man who is driven by evil and paranoia. Let me give you an example of the kind of corruption and immoral leadership characterized Herod. He had 10 wives, seven sons. He murdered 45 of the most wealthy and prominent citizens of Judea who had supported his rival Antigonus at one particular moment in his reign. He had his brother-in-law drowned because of his growing influence and popularity. He had his uncle Joseph executed. He murdered another rival, Hyrcanus. He murdered a close advisor, Soamus. He executed a wife, one of his wives named Mariamne, on false charges. His mother-in-law, another brother-in-law, two sons, and 300 of their supporters were all put to death. This is the man who just five days before he died would have another son executed. And this is the political climate in which this man, Simeon, and all those others in Jerusalem alive at that time were trying to make their living. It was also a moment not only of godless, lawless government, it was also a moment in the history of Israel where the prophets had been silent for 400 years. The glory of the Lord had departed from the temple in Jerusalem long ago, and the Pharisees had created such an oppressive system of self-righteousness that the people of God were exhausted by the mountain of traditions that had been codified into law. The Sadducees were claiming to be religious, but denying the supernatural, leading many astray in an over-intellectualized religion. This is a nation that is languishing spiritually. So a Christless, graceless religion will never create peace. And a powerful government like Rome, even with their puppet leader like Herod the Great, will never bring peace. But here's a man that Dr. Luke in his gospel introduces us to and tells us very little about him, but tells us the most important things. As bleak as Israel's national climate was and as dark as the spiritual heart of God's people seemed to be at that particular moment, as oppressive as Herod's rule had been, there were still those in Israel who above all other characterizations could be called righteous and devout waiting for the consolation of Israel. And so we read, look at verse 25, Behold, a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon. And Luke actually uses a little word here that draws attention to it. It doesn't translate well into the English, so behold is probably the closest we can come to it. Or some of your English versions would say, now, as the ESV does. Now there was a man in Jerusalem. But, but Luke's doing more than just making a, a general observation. He's actually trying to draw our attention as readers to something about this particular man. So what is it about this man that God wants us to note? Well, I want you to see, first of all, look at verse 25. He's a man who's conformed to the word of God. And we know that through the three particular adjectives that Luke highlights here. First of all, he's a, a, a righteous man. That is, there's a life that is conformed to God's word. 
Righteousness is the term that appears all throughout the scriptures. Sometimes it has reference to God himself, sometimes to his law. But to be a righteous person means that you actually order your life according to God's word. That means Simeon is a man who opens this book, listens and pays attention to what God is saying, and then says, is my life ordered according to this word? I was thinking as I was meditating on this over the last couple of days that there was a man I worked alongside of. I may have mentioned him briefly before. Part, one of the jobs, part-time jobs I had in college was working with the landscaping crew in the summers um, actually at my, at my college. And um, I worked alongside a man named Mr. King, a humble man, hardworking man. Uh, nothing that would stand out to you or to me if, if you just met him on the street, but when you worked alongside him day after day, I don't think I've ever been around a man who had more scripture flowing out of him in ordinary day-to-day conversation than Mr. King. And I'm not talking, it, was a, you know, it wasn't an artificial quotation of verses. You've been around some people like that. Their spirituality is put on. They're just trying to impress everybody with their knowledge of God's word. For Mr. King, it was just woven into his life. And he would share little portions of scripture or sometimes quote uh, an entire psalm. So humble, so unpretentious, but that made a lasting impression on me. And I think Simeon must have been that very kind of man where the word was so integrated into his life. It had just become a part of him. He was shaped and formed by it. And here Luke tells us that Simeon was a righteous man, a man whose life is conformed to the word. Second of all, that word devout speaks of his devotion. Devoted or devout in the, in the original text literally has the idea of taking hold well. Taking hold well. And the question is taking hold of what? Well, I think as we look at the text, it has to be the word of God and specifically the promises. And maybe we ought to ask the question instead of taking hold of what, the real question is of whom? Because even in the story, there's a person at the center of Uh, of Simeon's faith, and you know, for the follower of Jesus, he's the center of our faith. We're people who hold fast to God and his word. We didn't sing it this morning, but we have come to learn and and love a newer hymn in recent years, He Will Hold Me Fast. You know, if he had not first, if God had not first laid hold of you, you would have no compulsion to lay hold of him. And I think if we meditate on this for a a little while, we can see the the importance of God's word. And as we look through this text and study it together today and then again next week, you'll see that, that the word of God has shaped everything about Simeon. He's a man who's holding fast to God and his word. And then the third word that Luke uses here that's really important is waiting. There's an expectation here. And that word means to look with expectancy. There's a, a, a young guy that I've seen early in the mornings just down the street from us. So if I, when I, often when I come to men's meetup uh, you know, and leave my house about 6.45 on a Friday morning and I drive there, and that guy's waiting at the bus stop. And especially these cold mornings. I mean, I, I feel sorry for him. Is that the kind of waiting that Simeon's doing? Maybe, but I don't think it quite captures the intensity Uh, the sense of strong expectation that is built into the text here, even into the terminology. He's looking with expectancy. 
You know, in the same chapter, if you continue reading, and you should to the end of this chapter, you'll meet a woman named Anna. And in verse 38, we read, she is also waiting but for the redemption of Jerusalem. And those are not two different things. They're just two different ways of describing the same thing. So waiting, as the scripture says, has to do with looking for God because of his word. And specifically, it says of Simeon, he's waiting for the consolation of Israel. Now, I love this. We need to look for just a moment at this word consolation. That has to do with looking for a source of comfort that people like you and me might experience in times of disappointment. Well, that kind of leads us to ask another important question. If Simeon is waiting to be consoled or comforted, what are the disappointments that he has suffered? And again, the Bible doesn't tell us specifically. We talk generally about the the moment in history he's living. I'm sure it was a profound disappointment that the Romans had come in and occupied his beloved homeland. I'm sure it was a profound disappointment that the prophets had been quiet for 400 years. I'm sure it was disappointing that he went to the temple and he could read the stories about how the glory of the Lord used to fill temples like Herod's temple that had been constructed on that old site. But the glory of the Lord wasn't in the temple. I'm sure it was disappointing that the religious system that Israel had slid into under the direction of the Pharisees and the Sadducees was such an ugly distortion of God's character and a perversion of truth that it was damnable. I mean, we can fill in some general blanks there, but the Bible doesn't tell us anything about his personal life. I think when you look at both Simeon and then Anna, you recognize that here are two people who by faith are walking with God, clinging to his promises, not letting the disappointments of personal circumstances or even national turmoil dictate to them what their faith is all about and where it rests on any given day. This is a man whose life is being conformed to the word of God. And then we read on, the Holy Spirit was upon him. Now that's a phrase that has an echo of Old Testament prophets. So we should think in terms of it and even ask, is this, is this one of the Old Testament prophets? And I don't think the text would tell us that, but if you were to just survey a number of Old Testament passages like Numbers 11 or Ezekiel 11 uh, or Isaiah 61, you would see that when that phrase appears... The Holy Spirit was upon him. There's always significant ministry that unfolds. And typically, it has to do with prophetic truth being given. God speaking to his people through a prophet. So even in the context of the story, we ought to stand up and and take note. Well, maybe this man is going to have some really important things to tell us, either from God or about God. But he's also... Uh, a man upon whom the Holy Spirit rests like New Testament saints. The full outpouring of the Spirit will not come until Pentecost, three years later. But God is making his presence and influence felt all along the path of Messiah's birth, and he will through the crucifixion and resurrection and even beyond. And Luke actually develops this theme of the Holy Spirit's ministry uh, it, with, with extraordinary depth both in his gospel and then of course in the the book we know as the acts of the apostles so while the full outpouring of the spirit has not yet come it will so the holy spirit is present with this man and secondly the spirit gives him revelation now look again at the text with me if you will because we read something really interesting here don't we 
it had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ. So the message that has been given to him is not simply what is recorded in the Old Testament and, and how marvelous those, prophets, those prophecies are. We read one this morning from Isaiah 40, but think of all those in Isaiah. Think of what others like from Moses to, to Malachi had foretold. I want to know when the Spirit revealed this to him. The text doesn't tell us. Was it days before? Was it years before? And in revealing this to Simeon, I mean, what kind of expectancy was growing within him? I mean, we can only imagine. So not only did the Spirit say Messiah is coming, which the Old Testament prophecies make that abundantly clear, but the Spirit, in a very personal way, says, and you will see him before you die. Well, you would think that would make Simeon or any of us full of hope and full of excitement. And I think that's fair. We sometimes feel like, though, that these, the, these people enjoyed such extraordinary privileges that nothing we could ever uh, experience would, would come close to it. And in one sense, that is true. But on the other hand, and I put the reference on the screen for your encouragement, if you look at 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 19, Peter, who was an eyewitness of Jesus, who walked with him, lived with him, listened to him, served with him for three full years, who knew the filling of the Holy Spirit at Pentecost, who was able to perform miracles under the power of the Holy Spirit, that Peter writes to us, we have the prophetic word more fully confirmed to which you will do well to pay attention as to a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. And then he goes on to describe what we typically refer to as the doctrine of inspiration, that this word is given to us, not by the will of man, but by the direct work of the Holy Spirit as he carried the authors along, giving them the word, inspiring them. It's God breathed, as Paul said in one of his letters, but Peter is actually highlighting the value of this word. And it seems that Peter is elevating it above his personal experience. A sure word of prophecy. And yet for so many of us, this, this book just kind of remains closed. On a ta end table somewhere, a shelf. App remains unopened. And I think what a treasure we often overlook. Your experience of Christ may be different from Simeon's. Even your experience of the Holy Spirit may be different in some really specific particulars. But you are, you are not deficient, beloved. The Holy Spirit was upon him and the Holy Spirit is and should be upon every follower of Jesus. Well, look at what happens next. The Holy Spirit gives him direction. Verse 27 says, he came in the Spirit into the temple. It seems very simply put that the Spirit on a particular day said, Simeon, get to the temple. And so he came. Now, we believe this would have been about 40 days after the birth of Christ. And, and Luke even makes reference that the you know, the, the holy family, as we sometimes refer to them, came to the temple to fulfill what was spelled out in Old Testament law. And then Luke even uh, gives us just a, a little portion of that. 
The parents brought in the child Jesus to do for him according to the custom of the law, verse 27. You pause right there and you begin, again, I, I'm, I'm kind of on this kick. I hope you don't get weary of it, but the chronology of the Bible just really mesmerizes me. Last week we were looking at Eve. Got the promise that all this is gonna happen about 4,000 years in advance. 4,000 years is a long time to wait. But you know what? When you're looking for Christ, even 40 days is a long time to wait. What? You ever think, why didn't the angel come to Simeon, who was a righteous, devout, eagerly expectant man? Why didn't they come to him the night of Christ's birth and say, hey, it's, it's actually a relatively brief journey from Jerusalem over to Bethlehem. You might want to go see. Messiah's here. But that's not God's timing, was it? The shepherds got that privilege. That's a whole other conversation. Why those dudes? But this was the time. And so Simeon comes to the temple by the direction of the Spirit. And look at verse 28. He took him up in his arms there at the temple on that day, at that moment. There's this marvelous confluence of human faith and divine purpose. All that waiting, all that expectation, all that uncertainty in a moment becomes real. And that's where we come to the most important part. His life is not just conformed to the word and controlled by the spirit, but he really, really experiences the consolation of the son. It's not the full consolation because he'd have to live another 30 years. And the way the text reads, it seems like, you know, Simeon's probably toward the end of his life. He won't personally witness Christ crucified. He won't stand by the empty tomb with other eyewitnesses on the day of his resurrection. He won't ascend the mountaintop with the disciples and watch the ascended Lord promise, I will come again. But at this moment, he holds a child, a six-week-old Messiah, and looks upon his salvation. I love that phrase. He took him up in his arms. The one who gave Simeon life, who pulled him out of the dust as he had with Adam so long ago and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. He holds the creator and he holds his savior. What a marvel. Simeon's faith becomes sight in that moment. I think it's precious too that he not only sees the Lord's Christ as he had been promised by the Spirit, but he holds the Lord's Christ in his arms. Matthew Henry, in his classic commentary, makes uh, a sweet note about this to say, it was promised him that he should have a sight of Christ, but more is performed than was promised. And I think how beautiful and consistent that is, even with passages like Ephesians 3, verse 20, that remind us it is our God who does exceeding abundantly beyond what we can ask or think. And as a result, Simeon knows peace. Look at the text, verse 29. Lord, now you are letting your servant depart in peace according to your word. It was that word that 
gave him faith initially. It was that word that created this hope and expectation. It was that word that guided him through life and began to transform his character. And this is the moment orchestrated by the Spirit of God for Simeon. But you know, it's also a moment orchestrated by God for you and for me. And it was recorded at the Holy Spirit's direction by Luke, preserved in this gospel so that you and I too might have reasons to believe, that we might experience peace. You know what's interesting about this? There's nothing in the text that says Herod repented of his immorality and wickedness and evil and told Israel he was sorry. Doesn't say anything at this moment about the Pharisees and the Sadducees having a great awakening going, you know, we're among the most evil religious leaders who ever walked the face of planet Earth. We're sorry. The immediate circumstances of Simeon's life have not changed, but he's holding the Savior in his hands, and he basically says, the world's right. All is well. Jesus has come. And that's really been the story for all the saints through the ages. This world remains a mess. That's why we spent time in Genesis, so we could have that framework in place to go, oh, yeah, wow, sin is terrible, and it has worked all kinds of difficulty and woe and really horrific things that we're dealing with today, but a Redeemer came as promised and is coming, and here we are in between, looking back with joy, celebrating, exchanging gifts because Jesus has come, yet looking with great longing and expectation to the future because Jesus promised that he would come. For Simeon, the pathway to this moment, though, began, and, and we have no details here, but we can fill in some of the blanks. There had to be some point where he began to open the word and read it for himself and believe it personally. A hunger, if you want to think of it this way, was awakened within his soul for the word of God. And as he continued to study the word of God, the, the spirit came and made it intensely personal for him, even speaking to him, at least at this one moment, and saying, you're gonna live to see the Lord's Christ. And I think this story is designed not only to tell us what happened, but to inspire and spur us into that same kind of personal relationship and journey with God himself. Because God doesn't want you to treat this book as you do the, a classic like Dickens' Christmas Carol or the children's poem, "'Twas the Night Before Christmas." He wants you, like Simeon, to be so captivated by the word because his son is revealed in this word. He wants you, like Simeon, to long for the presence of the Lord so that your eager expectation would be described in terms like Simeon's expectation. And maybe most importantly, he wants you to know the deep and eternal consolation or comfort that the Son of God himself brings despite all the disappointments of this life? What is the source of your comfort? You know, the Lord gave us a beautiful promise and the only right answer to that from God's perspective is it has to be me, Christ. He's our con consolation even in this day. I was thinking early this morning and just kind of threw this in at the last moment, but I hope this will encourage you as it has encouraged me. Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians 13, 8, love never ends. As for prophecies, they will pass away. As for tongues, they will cease. As for knowledge, it will pass away. 
For we know in part, that right now, we, we only know part. Then we prophesy in part. But when the perfect comes, and I intentionally capitalize that, because it's crystal clear as you meditate on Paul's letter here that he has the, the coming of Christ himself. When the perfect comes, the partial will pass away. When I was a child, I spoke like a child, I thought like a child, I reasoned like a child. When I became a man, I gave up childish ways. For now, we see it a mirror dimly. And I wondered, how often did Simeon think, oh, if I could only understand this or, or know more. For now, we see it a mirror dimly, but then face to face. And beloved, we're not gonna take a six-week-old baby up into our arms and stare down into his sweet little face. We're gonna be ushered into the presence of the risen, glorified King of kings and Lord of lords. Now I know in part, then I shall know fully. And I love this, even as I have been fully known. You don't know Jesus perfectly right now, but he knows you. And we often think of, well, this is a season where we wait for him, and that's true. But do you know there's another side of it? He's waiting for us. Oh, planning to return, preparing a place for us right now. But he's also in a season of waiting because we're not all together. We're not all with him. Not all have been brought to that place of repentance or faith. And this table that we're about to share together is, is actually a gift from the Lord designed to strengthen our struggling faith right now. And it, we, we try to remind ourselves of this often, but we're gonna distribute little pieces of bread. And when Jesus broke bread with his disciples through what had, was an ordinary Passover meal until Jesus just like shifted the whole significance of it, he broke bread and distributed it to them and said, this is my body which is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And then he offered them a cup. It was a cup of blessing in the specific Passover feast, but we, we have little cups filled with grape juice this morning. There's a visual symbol of the blood of Christ because Jesus said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. And, and he, even here, some 2,000 years later, we continue to share in this beautiful uh, ordinance that the Lord himself offered to us to strengthen our faith. Don't lose sight of the fact that he calls you to come to this table in faith and believe that his body was broken for you so that you would be delivered from your sin, free from your guilt. All of that shame that you struggle with would, would be removed from your soul, that you would know by virtue of this powerful symbol that the cup is that your sins are fully forgiven and that he has entered into an eternal covenant agreement to save you so let your faith be nourished but let me tell you there aren't enough calories in this physically to nourish anyone's body significantly but there are more calories spiritually speaking in this little piece of bread and cup than you or i could ever fathom this is the lord's gift it is the lord's table and there's one other gospel um I think it's in Matthew's account, though, that reminds us that the Lord himself said, I'm actually not going to drink of this cup until I drink it new with you in the kingdom. See, he's waiting. A self-imposed fast because of his great love. 
So what a, what a great moment for us. Your story may not unfold just like Simeon's, but God wants to lead you uh, along a similar path of, of deep personal experience and intimacy with him. And he has revealed himself to you through his word. He has spoken to you the good news of Christ's life and death and resurrection and even sets before you today powerful symbols that you might believe. Father, how thankful we are that in the fullness of time you sent forth your son, born of a virgin, born under the law to redeem those of us who were imprisoned under the law, imprisoned in our sin. What a mighty God you are, fulfilling every one of your purposes and promises that you had given from of old. And oh, how I pray that as we receive this bread and this cup, we might find the full assurance of faith through the work of the Spirit that Jesus is everything he declared himself to be and that Jesus has accomplished everything he promised he would accomplish. Without the shedding of his blood, there is no forgiveness of sins, but because he shed his blood, there is full and free forgiveness for all. We praise you for our Lord. We praise you for his body and blood. We praise you for this table, Lord Jesus. We're in awe once again that whereas we used to be your enemies, now we are your blood-bought brothers, guests at this table that really is a banquet for our souls. These things we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.